Welcome to the Exam Room Podcast, brought to you by the Physicians Committee. Hi, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Thank you so very much for raising your health IQ with us coast to coast in the U.S. and in more than 150 countries. Hi to everyone listening in New York City, Los Angeles, California, Toronto, Ontario, and London, England, plus all places in between. Wherever you are, we appreciate you helping to make the world a healthier place. This is episode 97 of season 5, number 396 overall. What a year this has been. 2022 has truly been a record-setting year for the show. Millions of exam roomies have tuned in from all walks of the world to raise their health IQ with us. And so today, we will be taking a look back on this banner year with our five biggest episodes. And they run the gamut. Everything from foods that lower cholesterol to the best spices for your gut, foods that can improve your memory, and yeah, even foods that can help prevent hair loss. But our biggest episode of the year, and perhaps most touching, is from a cancer survivor who shared her story of survival and also now her five favorite cancer-fighting foods. So we're gonna find out what those foods are when Lauren Kretzer joins us momentarily. Also, Dr. Will Bolsowitz will be in the house, but we're going to start today with hair loss. Our number five episode of the year is, in fact, about your hair. If you had asked me that question 30 years ago or 40 years ago, the answer would have been, who knows? We don't have any link between hormones and hair loss at all. That has all changed. And what really happened was in Japan. Japan, as you know, had a diet based on rice, not too much meat, very, you know, uh, some fish back in the 1960s, virtually no dairy. And then McDonald's came in. And when the golden arches went up, everybody started eating more burgers, more cheese. Dairy became a, a thing. The diet was westernizing. And what you have all heard about is that people started gaining weight. And they had more diabetes and more heart disease, certain kinds of cancer. Breast cancer went way, way up. But dermatologists started noticing something too. They said, you know, there wasn't very much baldness in men or in women um, in Japan when the diet was a predominantly plant-based diet. But now that the diet's changed, we're seeing baldness a lot. Well, was that a fluke? No, it wasn't a fluke because in Korea, in China, in other Asian countries undergoing westernization, they saw exactly the same thing. So what's going on? There are two different broad categories of the most common kinds of hair loss. Uh, male pattern hair loss is around the temples and the crown. And then what's often called female pattern hair loss is really more diffuse. And they have two different etiologies, but food is central to both. So with regard to male pattern, you got the genes. Your DNA, if you inherited it from your, your bald ancestors, um, you have the genes that, that can, can lead to baldness. But what sets it off is that the genes are turned on or off by testosterone. So the only reason that women rarely get male pattern baldness is they just don't have so much testosterone. But if you're a man or a woman and something in your diet is making the testosterone more active in an inappropriate way, the baldness starts to express itself. It's not just testosterone overall, it's testosterone's attack on the follicle. 
It's not to get this will not be on the test, but testosterone is converted to something called DHT in the in the hair follicle and bingo, the follicle dies. Um, so what do we do? It looks as if a Western style diet with meat, with dairy and fatty foods seems to cause that process to occur more aggressively. Now we need more research on this to be sure, but that pattern seems to cause the, the, the change uh, in the follicles, both in men and in women. Added to this is uh, not just the testosterone hormone, but the insulin hormone. When women are insulin resistant, in the case say of polycystic ovary syndrome, they have a, a diffuse hair loss that, that, that can occur. And the insulin is uh, reacting with testosterone in a not very helpful way. Okay, so that's a lot of information. What do I do? To calm down the effects of testosterone and insulin, you want the animal products out of your, off your plate completely and keep the oils really, really low. You've heard me talk about this with diabetes. Um, when that combination causes the insulin action to be able to be diminished, causes insulin resistance to be diminished, and it causes testosterone to do what you want it to do. So that's a long-winded explanation, Chuck. But the bottom line is that diet has a lot to do with the expression of baldness. There are some people where the genes are just so profound, you're gonna probably get it no matter what. Uh, but it does look like it can be modulated by food choices, at least for many people. Let's move on to the next show on the countdown. Coming in at number four is foods that can help lower cholesterol naturally. And why is it that we talk so much about cholesterol on the show? Well, it's because 94 million people in the U.S. alone have cholesterol that is considered to be at least borderline high. So it is a big problem that can spell disaster for your heart. And for most of us, when it comes to high cholesterol, the biggest contributing factor is, in fact, our diet. We are quite literally eating the cholesterol that is clogging up our arteries, and that can lead to heart disease or even worse, a heart attack. But if food is the problem, it can also be the solution. So coming in at number four on our top five episodes of the year is the show that I did with Dr. Neil Barnard about lowering your cholesterol naturally with food. Instead of focusing just on medicines or on some magical thing that's going to bring it down, look at what's bringing it up and get away from that. What brings it up? Number one, cholesterol itself. If your day starts with two eggs, you're eating cholesterol. In fact, if you're eating any animal product, you're eating cholesterol. Stop doing that. It does, yes, it does add to your own. Uh, the egg industry has tried to dispute that unsuccessfully in the same way as if you eat sugar, will it add to your blood sugar? Yes. If you eat cholesterol, will it add to your blood cholesterol? Yes, it does about half of it uh, adds to your own. But even worse than that is certain foods that increase cholesterol production in your body. The technical word is saturated fat. The informal word is cheese <laughs> or <laughs> it, it, cheese, meat, uh, eggs to a degree as well. And certain, there are certain plant fats, not very many, but a few of them that have a substantial amount of saturated fat that's gonna raise your cholesterol too. So if you wanna get your cholesterol down, avoid animal products completely, keep oils really low and if you don't do anything else, for most people, you're going to start to see your cholesterol come down 
And for 90% of people, your doctor is not going to even mention the idea about medication because your cholesterol level will be in, in a healthy range. 90% of people can improve their cholesterol by changing their diet. That is a huge number. And so naturally, the next question then becomes, well, how quickly can these changes happen? How quickly can cholesterol be brought under control? That is what an exam roomie by the name of Raymond wanted to know. He was ready to make those changes to his diet, get his health on track. And so how long does it take? In research studies, we usually wait about two or three months before we want to see the effect because that's where the effect has really blossomed. But the truth is your cholesterol starts coming down within the first week. So let's say uh, on a given day, a person decides, I'm going to try a completely plant-based diet today, not a shred of anything animal in it. So you're not eating eggs. So all that big load of cholesterol that's in an egg, gone. You're not eating the animal fat that's driving your cholesterol. It's all gone. Your cholesterol starts dropping on day one. And if you're in a hurry and you went back to the doctor two weeks, three weeks from now, just in that short interval, your cholesterol would be substantially lower. Uh, but there's no reason to hurry. It's a chronic issue. So don't, I would not bother getting tested for about two to three months out. And then the biggest question of all, you have statins on one side, you have food on the other, and in the middle is a rope for tug of war for lowering your cholesterol. Can diet actually outmuscle medication? Well, that is what an exam roomie by the name of Sam was wondering. And Dr. Barnard was ready with the answer. Very effective. Now, if you take the skin off your chicken and eat more chicken instead of beef and you have more fish and, and that kind of thing and, uh, and you switch from two eggs a day to one egg a day, the effect is minimal. It doesn't work very well. And so that's a big reason why doctors have gotten discouraged and they've started, been, they've started writing Lipitor prescriptions as if it's candy um, because they thought diet wasn't very effective. Let's not do that. Let's instead eliminate all the dietary cholesterol. Let's eliminate all the animal fat. And when that happens, the numbers look like this. Back in 1990, Dean Ornish, who has been a great friend to the exam room, um, he brought in people who already had severe heart disease, did exactly the diet kind of changes that the diet changes I'm talking about. And the LDL cholesterol, bad LDL dropped not 5% or 7% or 12%, it dropped 37%. So that's in statin territory. Uh, bottom line, it's, it's very, very effective. It varies a lot from person to person. And your cholesterol bounces around from week to week, but it's, um, if you do it right, it can be very much like medication. And what foods are best for lowering cholesterol? Well, for that, our conversation shifted to something called the portfolio diet which is just a plant-based diet with a portfolio of foods that are especially good for lowering cholesterol. And those are the foods, according to Dr. Barnard, you should be focusing on. Number one, high fiber foods. What we're we talking about, beans, of course. Fiber is roughage, uh, but also barley and, and oats. You know, you pick up a box of oats and they'll put a um, authorized nutrition health claim on there that the government lets them use, saying that it will lower cholesterol level. Uh, cholesterol levels, not huge, but a few percentage points. So let's add to it some other things. Soy protein, for some reason, lowers cholesterol beyond just the fact that soy doesn't have cholesterol and doesn't have animal fat. There's something about soy that will reduce cholesterol a little bit too. Next, next, yep, next up, almonds. Um, 
explain it, but we think it's probably the type of fat that's in almonds seems to have a cholesterol lowering effect. And fourth on the list, um, after fiber, soy, uh, almonds, the, the next one is certain kind of magical margarines out there. Now, most margarines are just replacing butter and they're not really adding anything helpful, but there are some brands like Benacol. You'll, you'll see these brands, they have certain sterols or stanols in them that have an active cholesterol lowering effect. David Jenkins put them all together, brought in human volunteers and said, try this. And he could get about a 30, 40% cholesterol lowering in four weeks. I mean, it was very fast. Um, so you can add those to your diet. That said, if you're just avoiding the animal products and the bad oils, you're gonna get a pretty good effect just from that alone. So far during the countdown, we have talked a lot about food, but what about the spices that we use to flavor the food? It turns out that they have a massive impact on our health, especially the gut. And that is where our friend Dr. Will Bolsowitz comes in. The Gut Health MD and his affinity for spice comes in at number three on our list. And he kicked off our conversation with some fireworks, showing that you're getting some banging plant-powered benefits even when you're a hardcore carnivore. People who are carnivore and they claim that they eat an exclusively meat meat diet, they still use spices, which come <laughs> from plants. That is my second favorite thing about spices. Like you're busted, you're claiming you only eat meat, but you can't quit us, can you? You need those spices because <laughs> they add flavor. That meat is boring without us. With liberty and health benefits for all. But what is it specifically about these spices that makes them so doggone healthy? Part of what makes them great, even when you're just reaching into the spice cabinet, is the polyphenol content. Polyphenol is what gives the spices their different colors. And many of these spices, they also have unique phytochemicals that you're actually tasting. Like what you taste, that sort of provocative uh, thing, is actually something that is going to ultimately come into contact with your gut microbes and have beneficial effects. I have never, Chuck, I have never come across a study that says that the consumption of spices is unhealthy for the gut microbiome. Every single one that I've come across, it says that they're good for us. Spices are a great way to add diversity into your diet. I encourage people to be liberal with your use of spices. It's good for the tongue, it's also great for the gut microbes. So what are the healthiest spices? What are your best bets? Well, narrowing down that list is no easy feat, but there was one spice that stood above all else in the Bolsowitz household. In fact, it's a spice that he prescribed for his own father, and that spice is turmeric. It has profound anti-inflammatory properties. They've actually shown that this activates the exact same pathway that ibuprofen and other drugs like that activate, but without the side effects without the harm, without the negative effects that you get from those drugs. And so speaking, you know, uh, for myself, in my own family, my father, my father was very tall. He was six foot seven. And I would actually, um, I actually recommended to him that he add turmeric to his routine because he was having a lot of arthritis issues. And believe it or not, by quite simply adding turmeric to his daily routine, he substantially improved his arthritis and he didn't have to take as much uh, naproxen and ibuprofen as he had been taking previously. One of the tricks with turmeric, by the way, is to pair it with black pepper. 
black pepper increases the absorption of turmeric substantially. Um, so anytime you're using turmeric, if you're looking for those health benefits, make sure even if it's just a little sprinkle, get some black pepper in there. But Dr. B wasn't stopping there. He had a major pro tip for fans of coffee, a three spice blend that can turn that cup of Joe into a healthy microbiome masterpiece. My personal favorite spice combination in a cup of coffee is turmeric, ginger, and cinnamon. You put those three, the trinity, into the bottom of your cup, pour some coffee over the top, stir it. Don't go too hard at the spices in the beginning. Go nice and light until you get used to it. But it's amazing. So when you go to Starbucks, I mean, do you do you try to place that custom order? Or are you just taking your own proprietary blend of spices with you to mix in? So the problem with Starbucks, I love Starbucks. Okay, I'm there almost every single day. But the the problem with Starbucks is that if you were to say, hey, add, could you add the turmeric for me? they would give some sort of turmeric that is mixed with sugar, right? Like when you order matcha green tea, it's actually impossible to get matcha green tea without added sugar at Starbucks, believe it or not, because they've already blended the two together. So, you know, look, it's up to you how you want to do this. It could be like a dollop bag, kind of similar to, you know, what you carry your um, uh, your uh, deodorant and your, you know, toothbrush in when you're traveling, um, or could be some sort of, uh, 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 like waste bag or something like that. I don't know. But the point is that you could bring your spices with you to Starbucks if that's what you're looking to do. Then with the help of Google, I got my hands on a list of the most popular spices, the most common spices in the kitchen. And so I went down this list one by one and asked Dr. Bolsowitz what effect each had on their gut health. And first up is cumin. Major thumbs up. Fantastic spice. Red pepper flakes. Believe it or not, yes. Uh, red pepper flakes including red pepper in general, contains capsaicin. Capsaicin has been shown to be good for the gut. Anti-inflammatory. All right. Bay leaves. More of a herb than a spice, maybe? I don't, I don't uh, know. I haven't seen any clear data, but I'm giving it a thumbs up because the assumption is that that's going to have polyphenols that are good for your gut microbiome. So I'm expecting thumbs up on that. Garlic powder. Oh, major thumbs up. Garlic powders. You know, look, I would rather you get fresh garlic, but I'm still giving it a thumbs up to garlic. Uh, it has allicin. And Allison has um, uh, the, the benefits that you get from garlic come from this phytochemical called Allison. Paprika. Paprika, that's a definite thumbs up also. I mean, anytime you see a vibrant color like that, vibrant red, you know that there's polyphenols in play that are good for your gut microbes. And uh, we'll round it out uh, with oregano. Oh, definite, definite thumbs up with oregano. Um, oregano has uh, anti-inflammatory and antimicrobial properties. Now here's the thing, oregano oil, which is basically taking oregano and then concentrating it. I'm a little bit more cautious about that because I feel like when you're concentrating it in an unnatural form, you can actually cause harm to the microbiome, but when it's consumed as a spice, totally different story, completely thumbs up on that. We've reached number two on the countdown. Our second biggest show of the year was an episode designed to keep your memory sharp as you get older. 
You know, memory loss is a big concern as we age. The World Health Organization estimates that 55 million people right now are living with dementia worldwide. And in fact, there are 10 million new cases diagnosed every single year. And some estimates even show that someone somewhere in the world is developing dementia every three seconds. Now, here in the U.S., one in three seniors will die with Alzheimer's or dementia, and the number of cases in the country is expected to more than double over the next quarter century. So I wondered, how much control do we have to avoid it? And I asked Dr. Barnard, how strong is the connection between our diet and our brain? Very strongly connected. Now, back, I, I couldn't have made that statement back in, say, 1980, because we were sort of speculating if you're old or if you got bad genes, that's what's going to bring on the dementia. But we now know that foods play a huge role. And the reason we know that is studies like the Chicago Health and Aging Project, which got started back in the 90s. And, and researchers in Chicago brought in a whole group of people. They tracked what they ate for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and then they tracked who stayed mentally clear as the years went by and who didn't and certain patterns emerged there are definitely foods that seem to accelerate dementia and there's there are others that are uh, protective so which ones are the most protective that's what an exam roomie by the name of lee wanted to know and then could one serving just one serving make all the difference it would appear so. Well, there's, there's a whole list of things that are helpful. And, and as you're hinting, there are also some bad ones that you want to get away from. Uh, but the good things, first of all, let's just sing some praises for vegetables and fruits just in general. Researchers in Chicago started tracking people's cognitive decline. Are you kind of slipping as the years go by? And the people who just never met a vegetable that they liked, they just didn't include them in their diets at all they had a much faster cognitive decline compared to people who ate vegetables and fruits, even if it was one serving per day. What's the difference? The difference, let's say you have a person who's eating about a serving per day. Over, over time, compared to a person who doesn't eat vegetables at all, it's a difference of about 11 years of cognitive aging. So a person who's 80 um, will be more like a person who's 69 if they're eating their vegetables and fruits throughout. Uh, but, but that's just the beginning. Uh, let's say a word for specific kinds of, of fruits. Uh, if you look at a blueberry, that dark purple color comes from what are called anthocyanins. This is a whole big group of pigments. It's the same ones that uh, nature brings out in the fall in the colored leaves on the trees. But anthocyanins in a certain form are in blueberries. And they are antioxidants that protect the berry. They appear to protect you too. University of Cincinnati researchers brought in people who were already up in years. They were already having some memory issues and they gave them blueberry juice uh, a cup of day in the morning, uh, a cup later in the day, that kind of thing. And they found significant benefit from that. But it doesn't have to be blueberries. Anything that's got that, that uh, dark purplish color like grapes, same thing. And, and one last food to mention, um, and this is a little bit of a mixed bag. Let's say I have uh, some almonds or some walnuts, they've got vitamin E in them. That vitamin E is a protector and people in Chicago eating the most vitamin E, not pills, vitamin E rich foods, cut their risk of Alzheimer's in half. Problem, the reason I say it's a little controversial is these are also the fattiest foods we have. And so if people are just overdoing it on the nuts, they're gonna gain weight. So my rule of thumb is about an ounce a day, 
and that gives you a, a long way toward the vitamin E that's going to protect your brain. It's almost impossible to talk about brain health and not talk about omega-3s. Think about it. Every time you go to the store and you go down the supplement aisle, how many bottles of fish oil do you see? And then a lot of times some drinks are even fortified with DHA, including milk. So a lot of exam roomies were wondering whether it was possible to get these necessary omega-3s without turning to fish. You do not need fish at all. Um, my favorite source of omega-3 is going to surprise you. It's green leafy vegetables. You send some broccoli to a laboratory and you think there isn't any fat in this, is there? They'll say, well, as a matter of fact, there are traces, maybe seven or eight percent of the fats in green leafy vegetables come from, uh, or I'm sorry, seven or eight percent of the calories come from fat. And a big percentage of that is good fat, specifically omega-3. And these are neglected in America's diet, but if you bring them back in, you're going to get the healthiest source of omega-3. And then some people want to go in a different route. They want to go supplements. You go to the store, they have the fish oil omega-3. Right next to it, they've got the vegan omega-3, which is made from algae, healthier than the fish oil part, certainly cleaner and obviously more ethical too. And it's got the EPA and the DHA just like the fish, only it's a healthier source. The other big takeaway from our conversation was that with the average diet and all of its pizza and chips and frozen dinner and fast food, those very things are the things that are very likely driving up your risk of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. In fact, according to Dr. Barnard, if you have a diet that is super high in saturated fat, the standard diet, you are at a two or three times higher risk of developing Alzheimer's disease than somebody that's eating a healthier fare. So with that on our mind, we were thinking, well, what changes can we make right now? What can we make right now? And how do we do it? There's a lot of doubt in our minds. A lot of people say, I could never do that. So we needed some hope and we needed some inspiration and hope came by the way of numbers. That is what an exam roomie by the name of Hamari was wondering about. What percentage of Alzheimer's cases are in fact preventable? We can't give a precise answer, but let me give, some, give you some things that you could put into the equation. Um, way back when, when researchers realized that there are certain genes that can increase the risk of Alzheimer's, we got really bad news that the APOE epsilon 4 gene or APOE epsilon 4 allele, to be more technical, if you got it from one parent, your risk of Alzheimer's was tripled. If you got it from mom and dad, your, your risk of developing Alzheimer's was about 10 times higher compared to other people, or maybe even 15. So that gave us kind of a death sentence. We thought, all right, there, there's nothing I can do. Researchers went further though, and they started to notice that even with people who have genetic risk, lifestyle factors seem to make a difference. And the biggest lifestyle factor is food. Okay, so let's go back to Chicago, which I was mentioning earlier. They noticed that the people who were eating an, a really low saturated fat diet, that's the non-dairy, non-meat diet, or, or as close to it as you can get. I mentioned earlier that they were cutting their risk in half or less, maybe to about a third um, of what it would otherwise be, just, just from that one step alone. Let's say we also avoid trans fats. That's my next step. Uh, trans fats are in snack foods. Uh, cupcakes, that kind of stuff. Uh, if you avoid that, that cuts about 80% of the risk out as well uh, compared to the people who eat a lot of them. And then we, we're going to add vitamin E, which I was mentioning earlier, that cuts the risk about 50%. Um, 
and let's say I exercise. If I put all these things together, my guess is that our risk of developing Alzheimer's is cut to probably maybe about 80%, either um, prevented or greatly, greatly delayed. And I am gonna suggest that that may even be independent of genetic risk that a person has. Now we need much more research to make sure that this gets put to the good test, but all of the epidemiologic studies would suggest probably something in that, in that uh, percentage range. Amazing, 80%, 80% you have control over. The power, my friend, rests on your power plate. And that brings us to our number one episode for 2022. It was a heartwarming episode with a cancer survivor and a chef who shared her touching journey with us. And then she also cracked open the research journals and came up with her five favorite cancer-fighting foods based not just on what that research showed, but what she has also discovered is helping her stay cancer-free. Lauren Kretzer is this extraordinary woman's name, and she took us to school when it came to cruciferous vegetables, how to cook them and the enzymes that they contain, and some hacks to make them taste really good, and a really interesting tip about chopping them and letting them breathe to activate some cancer-fighting compounds, and even how they'll be big-time players for people who are missing meat, especially if they're skeptical about eating that plant-based diet. Cruciferous vegetables are my number one just because they're so readily available in every supermarket in America. It doesn't really matter if you live in a city like New York or Los Angeles or somewhere in the middle of the United States or elsewhere, chances are you have cruciferous vegetables at your local supermarket. Um, and there's a lot of them. So the most common are broccoli, cauliflower, kale, but also arugula, Brussels sprouts, cabbage, bok choy, collard greens, watercress, radishes, turnip greens. That's just, you know, a, the, the most common ones that you'll find. And they have incredible cancer fighting uh, properties. And so I included them on this list because you can get so much bang for your buck nutritionally. Uh, they're not all that expensive. Um, even though organic vegetables are pricier, you don't need it to be organic to get the benefits of cruciferous veggies. So, um, yeah, that's why I was excited about this one, just because of the availability to most people. I'm a huge fan of Brussels sprouts in particular. So the fact that you mentioned them uh, specifically, like, makes me really happy because not <laughs> a day goes by that I don't eat roasted Brussels sprouts. Like, those are my jam. You yeah. know, are are you a Brussels sprout a Brussels sprout fan? Oh, yeah. Um, I love all the crucifers. And that's why they were my number one. They're a personal favorite of mine. And they're so hearty, like you really have to chew. So if you're not including meat in your diet, and you're new to a plant based diet, they're very satisfying, because they're not the kind of things that you just kind of inhale, you kind of have to, they really give you that satisfaction when you're eating them. And there's so many different ways to enjoy them. Like you said, you enjoy roasted Brussels sprouts, but there's so many ways to have them raw cooked, roasted, you know, sauteed, air fried. Um, but the biggest benefits come from eating them raw, actually. Mm. So they they contain this compound called sulforaphane, which is a mega anti-cancer compound. But sulforaphane can't be activated unless um, this enzyme called myrosinase is activated. And basically, myrosinase um, doesn't become activated when it's cooked. 
but there's a few hacks to get around that. So just, you know, first and foremost, try to include some raw crucifers in your diet. And it's fairly easy if you like salads. You can just finely chop up um, kale or cabbage or even Brussels sprouts, shred them, throw them in your salad. They don't even have to be the sole base of your salad, just part of it. Um, things like radishes, finely chopped raw cauliflower, like throw that all in your salad or in your wrap or in your grain bowl, um, you know, just some raw component, which I advocate for anyway. Um, I think, you know, some of the nutrients in vegetables are diminished when they're cooked. So it's always nice to have a raw component to your meal. But if you are cooking your veggies, um, there's two ways to kind of circumvent the deactivation of morosinase. Um, one is to chop your vegetables and just let them sit on the cutting board for about 30 to 40 minutes before you cook them. And just chopping them and letting them sit does activate that enzyme so the sulforaphane can be formed. So that's hack number one. And hack number two is to use ground mustard powder. So, you know, you can buy this on any spice rack um, in the grocery store, just mustard seed powder, ground mustard seed. Um, it tastes just like mustard. And you just want to sprinkle a very small amount of it on your cooked vegetables. And that will that contains morosinase. So that will activate the sulforaphane as well. So those two ways are ways to kind of circumvent that. Um, frozen vegetables um, you can also use, but they've been, you know, usually blanched. So like flash cooked before they're frozen. So if you're going to be using frozen veggies, um, the chop and wait method won't work, but you can add the mustard powder on it. And that will allow you to absorb all those valuable anti-cancer nutrients. Kitchen science for the win. I love that stuff. I never would have thought in a million years just by cutting up a vegetable and letting it breathe, it would somehow activate a cancer-fighting compound a little bit more, take that nutrient profile and raise it just a little bit higher. That is so cool. I had no idea until Lauren shared that with us. And next up in our conversation is, speaking of foods that breathe, this food, if you let it breathe, everyone in the house is going to know because they are going to smell it, my friend. This is a fact. We are talking about garlic here as our next cancer fighter. It is tasty if it's sauteed. It's tasty if it's powder. But you get a little extra punch from garlic when you eat it raw. I mean, I was so excited to read about the anti-cancer properties of garlic because I'm half Italian. So garlic is going through my blood as we speak. <laughs> and it's just such an incredible food. First of all, I mean, cancer aside, it's amazing for immunity. So right now, everyone's interested in boosting their immunity with COVID and everything else going on in the world. Just add some garlic into your diet. And immunity, of course, is related to fighting cancer cells as well, um, you know, which is something that I personally didn't make the connection with, you know, stupidly, I guess, like you think of immunity, you think of the common cold, COVID, the flu, you don't really think that your immune system is working to fight off cancer cells, but it is. Um, and so a lot of us have, you know, baby cancer cells in our body that never grow into tumors because our immune systems are working so hard to get rid of them. And so that's why garlic is such a huge um, thing to add to your diet. And it's so easy to add to your diet. I mean, it will be shelf stable forever in a cool, dark place. It's again, available at pretty much every single supermarket. Um, it's not expensive and it tastes great. Next up on Lauren's list is one of nature's candies. It is also a secret weapon in the fight against cancer. And as we're about to find out, berries are majorly beneficial in lowering your risk for cancer, but there is one berry in particular that stands above the rest. But 
really try not to get too caught up in who's number one here because what Lauren really is trying to say here is that it's hard to go wrong no matter what berry you choose. Berries are the healthiest fruit and they're second only to herbs and spices in terms of their antioxidant content. And antioxidants are just superstars in keeping us healthy. Um, berries help reduce inflammation. Inflammation is pretty much linked to everything bad um, that can happen to you, including cancer. So we always want to try to keep inflammation down and berries help with that. Um, they are just like chock full of nutrients and vitamins. So they just keep your body humming along really nicely. But um, aside from reducing inflammation, they also prevent DNA damage and they also prevent the tumor angiogenesis, which I mentioned before, the formation of new blood vessels for cancer to grow and spread so they can help prevent that. Um, and berries, again, are just widely available. Um, frozen berries are available year round. They're far cheaper than their fresh counterpart and they're just as good for you. So berries can be incorporated into all types of foods, mostly sweet, but of course, savory um, occasionally as well. And then there's one type of berry, well, two types of berries that I want to um, single out. Um, first of all, out of all the berries that you commonly find at supermarkets, um, they're all good for you. But blackberries are the highest in antioxidants out of all of them. So try to incorporate blackberries into your diet when possible. And the other one I wanted to mention is a berry that you've probably never seen before, possibly never heard of before. And it's the Indian gooseberry, and it goes by the name Amla. And amla is, I'm pretty sure it's the single highest antioxidant food in existence. Um, it's got this like very interesting sour taste to it. Um, I've never personally found it fresh or frozen, but they do sell amla powder online um, pretty much everywhere. And you only need a tiny bit. So like a half a teaspoon in your smoothie. Um, you could even like mix it into water and chug it if you wanted to. But that's going to give you a mega antioxidant boost. Like far more than you would get with any other food. So just like one little half a teaspoon will double the antioxidants that you would find in like say a blueberry. Um, so that's something that I always add in uh, to, to my smoothies just because it's so powerful. Making the list of cancer fighting foods at number four is mushrooms. And oh, did Lauren have some ideas for us here. How to cook them, the healthiest kinds of mushrooms, some wonderful ideas. And when it comes to cancer, the most common mushroom, believe it or not, the one that's found everywhere is really the biggest when it comes to fighting breast cancer. There was a large study done in China where they showed that just eating one white button mushroom a day, so the most like generic, common, cheap mushroom of them all, can help lower breast cancer risk by I think it was like 64% or 63% or something to, to that effect. So mushrooms have tons of compounds, which are cancer fighters. And um, they're just so good. I mean, like if you're eating a plant based diet, they really bring in that, you know, meatiness, that umami, um, you can have them on their own as a side, you can incorporate them into stir fries into brain bowls, you can even um, turn them into veggie burgers or vegan meatballs. I mean, I've seen mushrooms used in so many ways. One of my personal favorites is just to take shiitake mushrooms, um, put a little bit of tamari on them, a little bit of smoked paprika, and you bake them in the oven for, I forget how long, like 20 minutes-ish, maybe a little longer. And they turn into kind of like a bacony texture, and that just goes on everything for me. So um, I love mushrooms. I especially love mushrooms ever since my cancer diagnosis. Now I feel like I have to eat a lot of them. Um, 
So yeah, if you can incorporate them into your diet daily, you don't need a lot. Like I said, one button mushroom a day in that study was shown to drastically reduce breast cancer risk. And last but not least, we had to spice things up once again. It turns out that Dr. Bolswitz wasn't the only person touting the benefits of turmeric here. In fact, Lauren says that turmeric is another big time cancer fighter, and it has to do with a brightly colored polyphenol. Turmeric contains something called curcumin, and curcumin is one of the most impressive anti-cancer things that I've personally read about, and it's just so easy to add into food. So turmeric is, um, it's got like a slightly, I don't even know how to describe it, like a slightly spicy, but not heat-wise, just kind of like a slightly spicy um, taste to it but it's relatively subtle if you use it in small amounts. So turmeric is the main spice in curry powder. So of course, if you like cooking with curry powder, you're probably getting a lot of turmeric in your diet already. But if you're not using curry, you can just take the single spice turmeric and just add like a quarter teaspoon, a half a teaspoon to your food. Um, it will change the color, but you know, if you're making a soup, I always throw it in soups. If you're making a salad dressing, put it in that. Um, I actually buy the whole root when I can find it and I um, leave it peeled and I freeze them. And when I'm ready to use it, I'll literally just like rinse it to essentially clean it off and throw it in my blender and blend it up to make a smoothie. Um, and it's one of those things that if you read about it, it's amazing that it hasn't been advertised more as an anti-cancer agent. Um, it's that powerful, but unfortunately it's not the kind of thing that we can patent and make money off of. So I think that's why it just hasn't been studied as extensively as it, as it should be. And there you have it. Our top five episodes for 2022. I want to thank you so very much for making this such an extraordinary year for the podcast here on YouTube and Facebook and Apple Podcasts, wherever it is that you get this show, whether you're listening or you're watching. Thank you so very much for helping to make the world a healthier place with us and raising your health IQ one episode at a time. And really, each episode, one at a time, we are saving a life. And that makes this one of the most powerful podcasts anywhere on the planet. And it would be nothing without your help and your continued support. So thank you so very much from the bottom of my heart and for everyone here at the Physicians Committee for making the exam room this wonderful, wonderful beacon of health and hope. And for everyone here at the Physicians Committee, I am the weight loss champion, Chuck Carroll. Have a healthy and happy new year. And remember, as always, keep it plant-based. <laughs>